in these kinds of times, it's more necessary that we maintain the posture that we learned about last week. That as we enjoy God's favor because of Christ and as we just adjust to it and, and, and you know, tweak things so that we can continue to stay in it, so to speak, that we must realize that it's important that we maintain the posture that we learned about. It's a two-word posture. Will you help me remember it? Will you review it with me? Men, at the breakfast yesterday morning, I asked you to help me here, so let's be a prompter for the rest of the church, can we? The two words that describe our posture at all times, we must what? Stand strong. So yes, in the times when the Lord is working, we see his favor and we humbly get underneath it and it brings us joy. In that very time, as well as other times, we must realize there is still an enemy. There is a battle. And our, our one posture must be to, say it with me, stand strong. This is the duty and the singular posture of the Christian soldier involved in spiritual warfare, even while they're experiencing the victory of Christ. It's what we do. It's what you do. And it's what I do. We stand strong. Now, we haven't just done that in the last few weeks. I've seen you do that for well over a year. When many churches in our community and in the world, in fact, were being derailed from the mission of God during a pandemic. And too many churches saw hurdles as reasons to stop you instead saw them as opportunities. And you stood strong and you refused to let preference issues take center stage. Even in our own personal differences, Satan would have loved to see us detoured and divided over those differences or those opinions. But you stood strong on God's mandate to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and to not forsake meeting together. Thank you for standing strong. I know some of you are standing strong personally and in your families. You've experienced an immense amount of demonic pressure in a number of ways. Some of you have been tempted to end your marriage for unbiblical reasons, to dissolve it. Others have been tempted to, uh, to pursue a lifestyle that's sexually unscriptural and Satan's trying to lure you into that. Others of you have been facing the pull to return to a life of addiction, whether it's be to drugs or alcohol or pornography. But you have resisted. There are stories in our church that just keep popping up of folks who are resisting the pull and lure and temptation of Satan. And today you're still married, hallelujah. You're living purely. You're sober. You're clean. Some for, as I spoke with one man this, this week, for four plus years. Amen. One gentleman, just today I learned, four months and, and continuing. Amen, right church? One man I spoke with this week, a week. Now before you frown a week, praise God for a week. Amen? It's men and women who are resisting the pull of Satan and standing strong. I know I've experienced this personally. Just about a week ago exactly, the day after Thanksgiving, I just felt the, in, the insidious temptation of Satan to believe wrongly about a specific situation. 
And I gave in. I did believe wrongly about it for a couple of days. And it, it's why I was complaining in that time to Julie, to myself, to the Lord. I was adopting a, a victim mentality. I saw myself as, as one kind of a martyr. And, and I'm so thankful for God's graciousness that in the middle of that, he exposed the lies of the enemy and stood me back up strongly and helped me resist the devil so he would flee from me. And it's not just currently that you and that I and that we are seeing God's favor and his power to stand strong. I was reminded this week of just a few months after we planted First Family Church. We had gone to bed and it was several hours after that and I was awakened by a heavy, physically heavy oppression on my chest. I'm not sure if you recall this, honey. But I remember getting up out of bed. I think maybe you said, what's the matter or what's up? And I just said, something's not right. And I, I call it physical heaviness on my chest. There was a darkness in our house that wasn't just because the lights were off. And I asked God, I said, God, what's happening? And I, I think looking back, what Satan wanted was to, just to make us quit. Just to say, you know what, this, is, this will cost too much. This isn't worth it. But instead, I just got on my knees in the living room and I said, God, what is happening in this moment? I don't have the smarts or the brains or even the power, but you do. And I began to pray for God to stand in for us. I grabbed my Bible. I went to each of the doorways of our kid's bedroom. I just started quoting scripture. I prayed. I went to the kitchen you know at first I thought maybe someone was in the house you gotta have the sense like something's not right but the house was fine physically but there was an unseen demonic force a pressure tempting us to quit I went to our front door and I just begged God be strong on our behalf and by morning the Lord was faithful we didn't quit those demonic forces and pressures were gone I was reminded this week that kind of stuff happens. The devil is real, and he wants to prevent and destroy and derail the favor of God upon his people. I'm thankful that in those kinds of moments, and this kind of time, we are exhorted to do one thing. It's two words. Say it with me. Stand strong. Now, we do that through the armor of God. This is what the text said last week. It didn't describe the armor of God, did it? But it simply referenced it twice. This is how we stand strong in God's armor. And now between verses 14 and 20, these seven verses of chapter six, he actually describes now this armor of God, the avenue, the platform through which and by which we can stand strong. So follow along with me as I read this text for us. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 14. Stand therefore, very fitting intro, isn't it? This is his main goal. Stand therefore, and here's how. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To the end, excuse me, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints 
and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here Paul describes the armor of God. He mentions it twice earlier. Now he gives us a description of it. And my hunch is this, that some of you may be thinking, okay, Paul has this in mind, primarily this Roman soldier, and he's kind of picking off pieces of the armor and just making an allusion to things we wear spiritually. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing primarily. Is he using a soldier as an analogy? Yes, but what's really in Paul's mind is a word picture from Isaiah. In fact, if you were to take these phrases between verses 14 and 20, you would find many of them descriptive of Christ, the Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 59. Jot those down. Read those later in your small group, perhaps, or around your, or with your family. What Paul here has in mind is not the Roman soldier. He has the ultimate warrior of God's family, Jesus Christ, who has fought for us and has won for us. This is what Paul is describing, and I might even add, this is who Paul is describing. And it makes sense now why this armor is God's, why it belongs to him, because it describes the Son of God and what he wore in his battle against Satan, and now what we can wear. It also helps us understand when Paul says to put on the new man, put on the new self. In one sense, he's saying put on Christ. And so the armor of God is in one sense Christ himself. Hope to show you that in this text. So don't think, oh, he's just giving us a wartime analogy. There is a little sense of that, but he's giving us really an Old Testament understanding of what Christ has done for us and who Christ is. He is the personified armor of God for every one of us. In fact, one more brief general note about this armor. As we look into it and see how it really points to Christ, which, by the way, all of the Bible does. Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, as Jesus said on the road to Emmaus to those disciples, he began in the law and prophets and spoke about everything concerning himself. And so all the Bible points to Christ. As we begin to look at this and see that, some have perceived the armor of God to be maybe four pieces, five, six, some even seven. I'm not real concerned with, and this is gonna be hard for you to imagine, with technically and specifically how many pieces there are. Honey, that's hard for me to say, I know. I like accuracy and precision, especially in theological matters and textual issues. But the Holy Spirit convicted me about Monday or Tuesday and said, Todd, if you harp on that, if you make that your aim, you'll have people distracted and detoured from the point. You see, Paul's point isn't how many pieces are in the armor. Paul's point is you need every one of these elements in your spiritual warfare. So here's the heart of your pastor this morning. I don't know if there's four, five, six, or seven. I have an opinion, but it doesn't matter. I know all seven of these elements are necessary if you are going to stand strong. So I want to give these seven to you with the goal being that you stand strong in Christ. First of all, he talks about the belt of truth. This is the first of five defensive elements in the armor of God. He says it's to be fastened, or the word there is buckle, or to clasp. And we're to kind of bind up the areas of our life. I think one translation says the the loins, to gird them up. The idea is that as a soldier has some undergarments or some things that may be loosely towards the bottom, you're to take those 
and gather them up and through the belt, you're to kind of tie them all together. It's to keep everything intact and out of the way uh, so it doesn't trip you. And I think the sense here is this. Man, God's truth is what ties everything together. It comes under that. It's held together by that. And so then false things don't trip us. And so use God's truth to, like a belt. Tie your life together. Let that be what surrounds it and fastens it together. Now, I do think he's speaking here to a doctrinal kind of truth, okay? There is a, a truth. It's God's truth. But I also think he's pointing to a type of truthfulness that we live out. And you can only live truthfully when you live with God's truth as the only truth. Are you, are you following me? So there is a sense in which it's what I would call doctrinal truth. And then we can even say practical truth or integrity. And we're to live with both of those in this battle. Live with integrity, but that integrity is based on God's truth. The point is, here's the belt of truth that should kind of fasten itself around our lives, and it's all kept together by God's truth. It's the belt around us. He then mentions the breastplate of righteousness. This was a piece that they would wear in the front and the back. I think the word here that I'm thinking of is covering. You know, if, if clarity was a word that helped me understand the, the belt of truth, then covering really helps me understand the breastplate of righteousness. And it's not your righteousness. It's not mine. It's not what we've earned or done or merited. It's only Christ's righteousness applied to us as a covering. Hallelujah, amen, church, right? Because you and I would be exposed if left to our own righteousness. But God has clothed you in Christ's righteousness. When you believed and repented of your sin, the Bible says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that you might become the righteousness of God. When you repented and believed, God took the righteousness of Christ, one at the cross, and he gave it to you in exchange for your sin. And so now you can be covered in the middle of battle with the righteousness of Christ. I do think that this idea of the breastplate, you know, it covered the vital organs. And so what's vital to your protection is the righteousness of Christ. And if you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as your only source of righteousness before God, if the only way, well, the only way you can stand before God holy is through Christ, if you've not yet taken your stand upon Christ and in Christ, then you are, watch this church, you are exposed and vulnerable to the enemy. You are unprotected. I would urge you pastorally, trust in Jesus Christ as your only way to be saved and let his righteousness cover you. Not only later when you stand before the Lord, but now in the midst of the battle. So there's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness applied to us. There's, there, there's next this, um, this, these shoes of gospel readiness. Kind of a long phrase here. Um, this, this word readiness has the sense of preparation. And I would say the idea of stability and surety. I kind of like the word certainty. In other words, our feet are standing on something. And what is it? The Bible says it's the gospel of peace. I love the way it's the, the, the irony of using the word peace in the middle of a warfare text, don't you? But it shows us something. That this gospel has brought us peace with God and peace from God. So we, we rest our feet on that. 
We have a firm foundation. Our footing is sure. Not because of what we've done, because of what Christ has done. He's won the battle. He has brought peace to mankind, to all who believe. So church, our feet are on that. It's a place of certainty. When you're in the battle, you're not resting or standing on what you've done. You're standing with surety and certainty on what Christ has done. That he has won the battle. He has brought peace. And though we're enduring a a time of warfare in these evil days, so to speak, we know Christ won and will claim the victory when he comes again. And so we stand with certainty. Our shoes are, are based upon the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, he talks about the shield of faith. This is probably my, can I have a favorite one? Is that all right? The one that I find most intriguing? This shield of faith, it's, it's a body length type of, of equipment. Often they would line up side by side and they would put some on top and some in front. And so it could almost act as an entire shield for, for several soldiers. But individually, it would be a body length shield. Uh, it was a hard surface, but often coated with water soaked leather. You say, why was the leather water soaked? Well, in that day, often the enemy would pitch, excuse me, they would dip their arrows in tar or pitch and then fire them. But a water-soaked leather shield would often extinguish the arrows that would hit their shield. And so Paul draws on that to describe this shield of faith we have. It it extinguishes the flaming uh, darts of the devil, the evil one. Now, you may ask yourself, well, Todd, what are these darts that are being launched at us? It's a good question. I talk more about this on the podcast this Tuesday. Here's one suggestion. They could be accusations. I say that because in this text, Satan's described as the devil. The devil is the word for accuser. And and I tend to think that one of the things Satan launches at you are all the things about your past that are actually true physically but they're no longer true spiritually. And what extinguishes actual accusations that may be true physically, but what extinguishes them so they're not true spiritually? It's the shield of faith. It's the defense that God makes for you through Jesus. That yes, that's what you were, but you've been purchased by the blood You've been bought with a price. You now belong to me, and you're not what you were. You're now my child. You're clean and pure and righteous. And that shield of faith continues to extinguish all the accusations the evil one wants to bring at us. Am I the only guy thankful for that? I'm sure I'm not. Hallelujah. Amen, church? Because let's be honest. There's not a single soul in this room who doesn't have a checkered past. Oh, we have degrees of checkeredness, but everyone's got a checkered past. Aren't you glad that when God looks at you, he does not see your past if you're in him. He sees his son. And that's the shield of faith. In fact, you could rightly see this as a shield. Um, It is a shield of faith, but it's faith in God. It's not just some, you know, inanimate, positive thinking. This is really a shield of faith. It's a shield of dependence in God's faithfulness that every time Satan comes at us, our lawyer Jesus stands in for us. 
and says, oh, that may have been true, but they've been forgiven. They've been washed. They're one of mine. And praise God for the shield of faith. I think this is why I think of the word conscience. Because it's only through the shield of faith can we continue to stand strong with a clear conscience. That though something may have been true about us physically, through the blood of Christ and the work of Jesus, it's not true of us spiritually. He has washed us. And our conscience is clear because of the shield of faith, the trust and dependence in what Jesus has done. Amen. He then mentions this helmet of salvation. This one I I don't have a ton of explanation for. In fact, it's probably the hardest one for me to fully understand. It is probably the last piece of armor put on by the soldier. Perhaps in Paul's mind is the idea that that as we put on God's salvation, we know that if the worst thing were to happen, we have nothing to fear still because God has got us, we'll say. His salvation is sure. We are secure. So I think of the word confidence. We can go into battle even with imminent danger because God has protected the most important aspect, the head, the part when we think and make decisions and enter into battle and, and take action. And even if something were to happen, God's salvation is covering us. Paul uses this same phrase, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians. One of the only times that uh, an armor piece is repeated, he says that the helmet of salvation there is our, or the helmet is the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians. And so Paul understood salvation to be this, this, maybe we could say the final piece, the overarching protective element that even in the, the most dangerous of places, the worst of times, we are protected by what God has done. He has saved us. He then mentions two offensive elements, the sword of the Spirit first. Notice that in your Bibles there. He calls this the Word of God in clear terms, so there's no mistaking what this is. And the Word of God's reference is the sword of the Spirit, or as a sword other times in Scripture. In Hebrews 4.12, we're told that the Word of God is alive and powerful, and it's it's sharper than even a double-edged sword. And so this sword, which by the way, in this context, the word means a a short sword, one for hand-to-hand combat. If you recall, that's the word for wrestle earlier in verses 10 through 13. So as we engage in hand-to-hand kind of close uh, encounter combat, not with those that we see, not with flesh and blood, but as we engage in, in close combat with cosmic powers and demonic forces, rulers, authorities, and those types of things, this regime, these schemes of Satan, we need a close, short kind of sword for this, uh, these encounters. And that sword is the word of God. We are foolish to think that we can survive a battle with Satan without Scripture. This is the offensive weapon, and I'll say of choice, <laughs> because it defeats Satan every time. Which is why Jesus used it exclusively. We have the temptation of Christ recorded in the Gospels. In those Gospels, it's clear every single temptation that Satan brought to Christ, he countered with Scripture. And I don't think I'm out of bounds to say none of us here fight Satan near as well as Jesus. And if he used Scripture, guess what? You should use Scripture. In fact, let me just bear down here a little bit in a pastoral way. And be ever so plain and frank. The best habit 
you could develop as a Christian is to read your Bible on a regular basis. And by regular, I'm not afraid to say daily is a great place to start. In fact, surveys show us, and I've said this before, I'll repeat it because it needs repeated. Surveys show us, and theology teaches us, that the single habit that affects every other discipline, such as worshiping, giving, witnessing, community, just list your habit. The things that we as Christians know God wants us to pursue and we're to embrace. All of those are most affected by one single habit. What is that habit? Bible reading. So if you really want to grow in multiple areas, make sure you're doing one thing above everything else. Reading and studying your Bible. It causes you to grow in prayer, community, worship, witnessing. Everything's affected when the word of God is ingested, when the food, the source, the nourishment for our life, when the sword is taken into battle, everything's affected. So church, hear this plainly. Read your Bible. You can thank me later for the basic training, right? And that's how clear and simple it is, but you can do nothing greater as far as just a spiritual habit than to develop the personal discipline of a daily reading the scriptures. And then he mentions this idea of prayer. I don't think prayer is part of the armor. So at least I got that out there a little bit, right? I think it's probably the six things mentioned before. But did you know this, that prayer is the most mentioned word in this section? In these seven verses, prayer's mentioned more than anything. So we would be foolish. We would be uh, unaware of the point of the text, or at least the, the, the overriding nature of the text, if we left out the most important and most mentioned word. Paul is saying prayer must be the environment, the atmosphere in which this armor is used and, and absorbed and put on and This is the environment that must always exist, the idea of praying. Look what he says in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Another word for prayer, just a different form of it. And then he mentions supplication again at the end of verse 18. So multiple times in multiple ways, Paul says prayer needs to be the consistent environment and atmosphere. And it was for Jesus, do you recall? In his greatest moment of temptation... I would say if you were to pinnacle, if you were to uh, chart the aggressive temptations of Christ upon Jesus, the pinnacle one would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what was Jesus doing there? Praying. It's further accented by this. When he left that time of prayer, he found his disciples and they were sleeping. He said to them, pray that you don't enter into temptation. So can I urge you not to underestimate the importance and necessity of the posture of prayer while you're standing strong. We say it like this around here. Prayer is our first and best action. We can say prayer is our first and best reaction. You can say prayer is our first and best response. Take your pick. Here's what I want to make sure you hear. Prayer is first and best. (laughs) And whatever comes your way, whatever you're facing, prayer should be our first and best Next step. We may do other things. We probably should. But we should always pray and not faint, as the scriptures say. I hope this gives you, um, gives weight 
to our prayer gathering coming up in December, just about a week and a half away, December 15th, right here on a Wednesday evening. We're structured it with our family team in mind. We've worked together to create moments and places where families can pray together. We'll have open mics. Uh, will there'll be scripture read. There'll be prayers made. We'll have times of prayer for healing with the elders. Uh, there'll be a place in the middle where if you have to get your child to bed, we understand that, maybe a little earlier than we're done, you can leave without guilt. We're, we're good with that. Like, I just want to make sure you know that there's a time coming in a week and a half we're just going to gather as a church and pray. Are those important? Yes. Try to adjust your schedule best you can to be here to pray with your church. It doesn't mean that individual prayer is not important. We need closet prayer and we need community prayer because prayer must be the consistent environment we're living in as we stand strong. And I just personally am very thankful for the way over the last probably six or seven years, this will be helpful to those of you that are new. We have well over 200 new people in the last, I think, 11 months. I'm so thankful for the way that God has just kind of embedded in a deeper fashion our need and dependence upon prayer in this church. We have regular prayer gatherings. They're always worship-based, scripture-fed and spirit-led. Um, we have regular prayer in our small groups. We have a prayer team that meets weekly. They're going to begin to meet monthly next year. We have a group of women who meet by Zoom to pray. And I know there's other folks who are praying regularly that we don't even know about, prayer warriors. Church, we can never underestimate the value and necessity of praying. It is the consistent environment in which the armor of God is exercised and adorned and donned, okay? So here are these weapons and attire, this atmosphere, seven elements in this armor, which is the avenue, the, the place where we experience the power of Christ to stand strong. I'll just give them to you in a succinct type of running list. We'll take away some of the modifiers and we'll just get to the real core of the armor of God. It is truth, righteousness, the gospel, salvation, faith, or we could say God's faithfulness, the word and prayer, seven elements that are vital if you're gonna stand strong. Now, hang with me. As I mentioned to you earlier that all of these, I should say most of these, especially the first few, are really taken from the Old Testament when the Messiah is described, Jesus Christ, as our ultimate warrior, as the one who has fought and will fight for us. So we can say textually that all of these things really are Jesus for us, for he is God's truth. He is God's righteousness. He is the good news of God. He is the salvation of God. He is the faithfulness of God. He is the word of God and he no doubt prays for us in the presence of God. So when you hear someone say, put on the armor of God, I don't want your mind to run to seven static type of inanimate, uh, you know, spiritual types of clothes. I want your mind to run, yes, I'm gonna put on Jesus. I'm gonna put on the son of God. And the very elements, the very attire, the very things that Jesus wore, and I would say to you, the very things that Jesus was, he gives to you so you can stand strong in his might. And when you put on the armor of God, you are, in a very real sense, putting on Jesus. 
And this is why you can stand for him. Because in these very things, Jesus fought for you. And he does fight for you. He's the ultimate warrior. He's the one in which these are seen perfectly. And in righteousness and truth and in salvation, the gospel and prayer and the word and faithfulness, Jesus fought for you. He won the battle for you. So church, you can and will stand for him. You don't have to muster up some kind of strength somewhere, manufacture some type of energy or have some type of positive thinking. All you've got to do is look to Jesus who fought for you, who fights for you, and who will fight for you and say in his strength, I'm going to stand strong. That's really our take-home truth today is that because Jesus fights for you, you can stand for him. You will stand for him. This is what his children do. We stand strong because he won for us. In fact, would you just say this simple take-home truth with me? Because Jesus fights for me, I will stand for him. And church, let's just be clear. He did fight for you in the past at the cross. There he won the victory definitively. He said, it is finished. He is fighting for you at the throne. Even now when Satan launches those accusations at you, it's Jesus who steps in and said, that's not who that is. He, he intercedes, he, he defends you, and he will fight for you. When he comes again and crushes Satan under his feet, Jesus will remove forever the presence of Satan. Hallelujah. Now we have been freed from its penalty and power, yes. But when Jesus comes in the future and fights for us physically and visibly and personally, at his second coming, he'll remove the very presence of Satan. Aren't you glad that Jesus has fought for you, is fighting for you, and will fight for you? That's exactly why you can stand for him, because the ultimate warrior has won the battle already. In fact, while we're thinking about how Jesus has fought and is fighting and will fight for us, can we just take a moment in this exact space to remember that in communion? A little different than in, the, in normal weeks, but could you take your elements with me? And while our minds are fresh upon how Jesus has fought for us and intercedes for us and stands in for us still, will you take the two elements? And I'm just going to give you an opportunity this morning to remember them both and take them together. Remember these elements as you're preparing them. They remember the body of Christ sacrificed for us. This is where he laid down his life. And as odd as it sounds, it was a life of surrender to God's will. That's where the victory was. And then he shed his blood for us. The cup remembers that. And so in both the wafer and the juice, we're remembering the death of Christ. But it was the death of Christ that purchased our redemption. It was on that cross where Jesus said, it is finished. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, declaring the sacrifice was completely satisfactorily, eternally redemptive. And now we remember that victory when he fought for us at Calvary in this way. So church, take the bread and the juice and remember Jesus together.
What you just did was in a tangible, physical way, you remembered when Jesus fought for you. Amen, church? Now I'm gonna ask you in his armor to stand for him. Yes, symbolically and spiritually, but actually in this moment, I want you to stand with me and let's pray this prayer together for our closing time. A prayer that I wrote this week, mainly just for me initially. I was prepping and just digesting this text. I scribbled out this prayer, and the more I scribbled it out, the more I began to work with it, and the Lord seemed to say, the church should pray this with you. So actually, I not only put it here, but I've printed it on cards, and when you leave, you'll receive one. Just be on a small little, like, verse card size. Will you take it, and will you, at least for this week, will you with me, put that somewhere where you'll see it pretty quickly before you get going in your day, maybe by your nightstand, for me, maybe like the fridge, something like that, you know, just that you're going to get to pretty quickly, right? Maybe your car, your bathroom mirror, your phone, somewhere that, that you'll see pretty quickly in the day. And will you say this prayer? Will you take up the armor of God? Will you put on the, the clothes that the ultimate warrior Jesus Christ wore? And will you stand in his strength? Keep this with you, say it throughout the day. And let's continue to remain in a posture of humility under the Lord's authority and in his strength as we continue to just sense this pervasive joy and gladness from God that even in this warring time, this evil day, God shows favor upon us. Let's stand strong in his armor, the armor of his son. Would you pray this with me, church? Lord of hosts, bind me to your truth. Cover me with your righteousness. Plant me on your gospel. Secure me through your salvation. Defend me by faith. Protect me with your word and embolden me through prayer so that I stand strong against the schemes of Satan. In your name and according to your power, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.